Hi, I'm Graham Obrey. You're listening to the Bike Show on Resonance FM. Oh, do you want to like Marks and Spencer's call? You're listening to. <laughs> You're listening to Resonance <laughs> FM. <laughs> because. Because you're with it! Because you're with it! No. I've taken it too far now. Taken it too far. That's not me. Imagine me what I'm like when I drink beer. Land's End to John O'Groats. From the southern tip of England to the most northerly point in the Scottish mainland. A journey of around 900 miles. It's one of the most popular cycle touring routes in the British Isles, with thousands of people setting off every year on their very own end-to-end. But no end-to-end journey will ever equal the legendary ride in 1954 by a woman named Eileen Sheridan. Originally from Coventry, Sheridan stood just 4 foot 11, but she exploded onto the British time-trialling scene in the years immediately after the Second World War. At a time when women's cycle sport was in its very earliest days, a series of astonishing rides led her to be signed up as a professional riding for the Hercules Bicycle Company. Remember, this was the golden era of cycling in Britain, a short time in which we really did have mass cycling. In 1949, British people rode more miles by bike than they drove by car. And in the 1950s, time trialling was a hugely popular pastime, with as many as 100,000 people taking part in amateur events across the country at weekends. On a blustery morning in the summer of 1954, Eileen Sheridan sets out from Land's End. Her target? To break the record set in the pre-war years by Marguerite Wilson of two days, 22 hours and 52 minutes. Two days and two nights of continuous hard riding later, she was finally pushing on to the finish. I got to the point where the wind had turned and uh, the sea came, became grey and, and I was just sort of plodding along. And then I saw this little boy on the side of the road and I called out, How far is it to the John O'Groats Hotel? And he said, The John O'Groats Hotel? It's a long, long way from here. <laughs> I shall never forget those words. <laughs> Oh, it was it was a terrible shock when he said that. And I said to him, it can't be, it can't be. And it's amazing, the road dropped and all the telegraph poles came up and you got to the next and then it dropped and more telegraph poles and the road just went on and on. And I can honestly say it seemed endless. And then gradually you see the, the, the top of the the hotel come into view and it gradually gets bigger and your eyes never leave it your eyes never leave it this is the bike show on resonance fm with me jack thurston and on the show this week a genuine cycling legend now in her late 80s alive and well and living in west london eileen sheridan was kind enough to talk to me about her amazing record-breaking achievements and her life in cycling We begin with Eileen's very earliest memories of being an eight-year-old, pinching her aunt's bike to ride around the city streets of Coventry, where she grew up. I learnt to ride, well, I taught myself by riding on my auntie's very large loop frame job, and I could only see over the handlebars 
and the, the things came up, the pedals came up. But I, I used to practice, and then I was seen riding through Broadgate between the tram lines along the cobbles by one of my mother's neighbours, and I was hauled over the cotton, never allowed to go into the town again on this old bike, which, I, as I say, I had no control over, really. But that was the way it all started. And my first, my first bike was a, a BSA, heavyweight, <laughs> ladies' open frame job. My father bought it for me for my 14th birthday. And I used to ride everywhere on it. Ken and I were very, very keen on, on touring. And uh, we went in for the... The first thing we wanted to do was to go in for the 100... I think it was 120... Was it 120, Ken, for, for, for 12 hours? I can't remember now. 140 and 12. And I remember the man didn't want her... He, he didn't want Ken to... He said, I'm sorry, but you'll have to take her home, he said. Uh, I can't be responsible for her. They're all, they're all men. And um, Ken said, no, no, she refuses to go. <laughs> she refuses to go home. And, and they agreed to let me start. And, of course... No, he said, Ken, you'll be responsible. But no problem at all. I was, you know, it was just a natural stare, I suppose. We met the club at Edge Hill, which is about 30 miles from Coventry, and uh, at the tea place. And they were so pleased that we we turned up and they said, oh, they welcomed us. And, and then they, they said, can we come and have a look at your bikes? And they came out and they looked at my bike and I think they thought, oh, Lord, we've... We've got a slow one here because it was a heavy bike, but I was so used to riding it. I mean, Ken used to go out with me a lot, and then uh, he he said that he he got a bit, you know, he wasn't so keen on the distance as I was, and we used to ride to his mother's in, in Richmond, come to see from Coventry to Richmond, which is about 100 miles, and... Um, he used to be, sweat used to be dripping off his chin and it corroded his top tube eventually, it corroded the top tube and I was all calm and cool. <laughs> so obviously you've either got that staying power for distance or you haven't. On my 21st birthday, Ken went and bought me, um, we, we, it was advertised in the thing because it's wartime, you see, a second-hand Claude Butler Continental, I think it was called Continental. It was a lovely little bike, a little blue one, very pretty. <laughs> and, um, and it had um, gears. I think it had three-speed gear. It was great fun. We used to have gorgeous times with the club. Lovely, quiet roads to, to how they are now. And occasionally you would pass the army marching along with all their gas masks on and they started they they were obviously doing a few whistling sounds under their gas gas masks and they sounded very funny there's sort of awfully rude noises going on as you pass them it was very funny but it was a beautiful time in a way except of course there was a shortage of everything and so some of the tea places we went to weren't particularly wonderful but we thought it was marvelous to get a cup of tea and and a sandwich and a cake and I used to do the pouring out for the boys, but I had to make sure that I had some cake left <laughs> before I started because they all were rather hungry in those days. We had some very good riders in our touring days. We had Bernard King, Bernard Bill King, the King brothers, and Vic Clark, the hill climber. We used to have some tear-ups going home through uh, Warwick. <laughs> it was really, really funny. No, no, no one dropped me. I was, I was hanging on. We had some great times. We had some really lovely, happy times. And the lorries were marvellous because they would go along at a very steady rate, you see. And if a lorry went by, you could 
charge after it and get into this the the thing of it and hold on there not not hold on the back but keep up with the lorry and um and they could go on for, for miles like that. Very good training runs I had on behind lorries. And I'm surprised they must have been breathing all their black smoke coming out of the back. Oh dear, but it was, as I say, a lot of people, they, they, they were helpful in that way, the drivers. They seemed to know that you were there. The fixed wheel is amazing. I, it was a lovely feeling to ride a fixed wheel. You did belong to the bike. It was all, it was wonderful. And I remember riding... Um, the 12-hour, my first 12-hour, and I rode 79-inch fixed throughout. And uh, and it was really exciting because on that ride, I'd never ridden a 12, and the chaps in the club said, look, we'll come up with you, with Ken, and we'll feed you and look after you. And they were dying for me to ride a 12-hour. So I went up to Yorkshire, and didn't know the course, of course, and um, when we first started, when I first started, I didn't see anybody for a while, and I really panicked and thought I'd gone off the course. I thought I'd gone off the course. So I rode back somewhere. Then I saw a motorcyclist who was just going to get on. And I said, am I going the right road today? And he said, you're going the wrong way. He said, Is that? And so I was right all the time. So I must have done an extra bit, a good extra bit. And then um, I finished up with 237 miles. <laughs> I was catching Susie Rimmington, who was the champion then, the, she held the record. I was catching her, and Ken held up a large banana and said, "Stop! I demand you to stop and eat this." And I said to him, "I'm not hungry." <laughs> and I rode past him. He was so surprised. He was so he thought, "Oh, what a dreadful thing to do to get." But she didn't put up any fight, so I was all right. I had to come about third or fourth in the men's. Very, very pleased about that. And the thing is this, that the men were doing roughly 240, 241, that sort of that sort of mileage. So I wasn't far off that for my first go. In the second year, I went up to try again. People didn't believe me that I'd done it. Um, it was it was sort of so near to the men's time. And uh, they, they just wouldn't believe that I'd done it. And one of the fast men from Solihull met me the, the next weekend at Meriden. And he said to me, oh, Eileen, nice ride, nice ride. Which part of the course did you miss out on? You know, that was very hurtful. And I just said to him, I'm going to go up and I'll do it again. So in the next next week, next year we went up. <laughs> and uh, and it, it was a foul day. It was lashing with rain. It was absolutely pouring down and I rode as hard as I could the whole time and I got just the one girl to catch I could see one girl I hadn't caught and I managed to catch came up level with her and we were going neck and neck and she didn't give way and we were really going hard at it and and she, and I looked at my watch and I said I began to laugh because it just did. I said you know we've we've got we've only got seven and a half hours to go <laughs> And I thought it was funny, you know, because I thought, I can't see how long this is going on for. And, and there was this awful gra- groan, and she went. I didn't see her again. Oh, it was rather sad, in a way. I didn't mean to to do be unkind, but it, it just struck me that it was it was a funny, funny position to be in. Oh, dear. I've had some great times. I enjoyed racing. I love the thrill of chasing, and, and that's in me. Even when I was swimming, I was a very keen swimmer, and I... I just had to try hard and win. And running at school, I would run until I dropped. It was just in me to chase. Yes.
And the same with cycling, cycle racing. You see, it was it was marvellous, really. We, we weren't ever allowed to ride, ride against the men. Now you are, and you can intermingle with the men. But um, I can actually say that no one actually passed me in a time trial. No one ever passed me. But I, I used to chase and catch, and it was very, it was a great thrill. It really was. I just did masses of miles when I could get them in. I just used to go out in the time I had left after I'd done my ordinary chores in the house and done things. And um, and Ken would say, you know, you go on out, it'll do you good, have a ride. And he was very keen because he knew that I was uh, I was quite a good time trialist and he wanted me to obviously do as best as I could. I used to go on my bike from Coventry to Toaster and back, which is about, I suppose, about 30 miles there, something like that. But not every night, just it, sometimes it would be 25 or 30 miles. As the dominant force in women's cycle sport, and with good looks and a great story, it was only a matter of time before the approach came to join the small handful of British riders, none of them women, who raced as paid professionals. People began to show interest and, and rally. They rally, you can't believe this, rally offered me £500 for all the records, can you imagine? For all the records. And at the time, well, like all young people, we were struggling to buy a house. And I just came, £500? Ken said, wait, wait. And he was very, very wise, because then it seems that Hercules and and Rally had a contract that they weren't to to tie up with with, um, a professional for some time. And so everybody was, it was all sort of hush-hush that, that they were rallying around trying to get me. <laughs> anyway, in the end, I, I, as I say, I signed for Hercules and they were, they were very good to me. We were able to buy a house and buy a car and to buy a house and a car, which was rather, rather wonderful in those days, and still feel that you weren't, you know, it was marvellous. It, it, it was a great, great boost to, to our, our life. Yes, we were very, very fortunate. Cycling is a very hard sport, and the Tour de France winners and the riders and that, they get very big money. But um, I didn't get very big money, but big enough to make life very, very pleasant. So now let's see some of the highlights of cycling sport in the 1952 season. Here's Eileen Sheridan, held up by Monty Southall, all set to attempt that gruelling record, the straightaway 100 miles. Choosing the Barnet Norwich course, this small parcel of female atomic energy is smartly away to speed merrily down the Barnet Bypass. The telephoto camera allows us an opportunity to admire her nifty pedalling action at close quarters as she revs steadily at 25s from a rather forward position well over the bracket. Just look at that rhythm. Eileen Sheridan showed her capacity for speed in her amateur days and her record-breaking feats as a professional have been no less remarkable. Making excellent progress, Eileen takes a drink in the style of the accomplished time trialist she is and gets on with the job of burning up the miles in the minimum of time as confident and cheerful as ever. The finish is at Ketz Oak, about seven miles south of Norwich, and timekeeper B.W. Best waits patiently as the seconds tick by. 
Here she is, in a flying sprint to complete 100 miles in the record time of 4.16.1, beating Marguerite Wilson's pre-war record by a comfortable margin. Manager Frank Southall is highly delighted and it's a happy party that moves off to plan, no doubt, the next record attempt for this remarkable little lady from Coventry. The end-to-end, -end, of course, was a really tough one. Um, and, of course, we, it's, it's longer then. It, it was 872 miles, but now it's 840-something because they've got bridges, the bridges. And they cut out a lot of the rough old country. And, you know, you get, you get to your riding through the night, you know. It's incredible. It's, it's almost like a dream world in a way. You know, everything's sort of... It's wonderful in a way. You, you're going through these caverns of light from the following car headlamps. Monty South, and you just have great, strong, powerful headlamps so they pick me up. And, um, and, and Jock Wadley from the cycling, the bicycle magazine said, I shall never forget being in the following car, he said, in the second, going through the second night. And he wrote in his article that I, I was banging them down like the great 24-hour record holder, and he couldn't believe it. And he said, and the amazing thing was that my shadow kept being thrown up if I went round a bend on, on a bank. And he said, and it looked, it looked so extraordinary. He said, dramatic, you know, pictures of this uh, bike cycling away. And it, it just becomes automatically, you know, I just keep drinking, making sure I have my drinks because I've got my glucose, sugar and salt and honey in it and things like that and black currant juice a hot chicken l lumps handed up every now and then between bananas I can swallow it <laughs> things like that it's very easy to lose speed by just daydreaming because you can, your mind can wander you know especially if you're, you're an artist and you think of things and, and your mind does wander but I loved, I loved going through the countryside I mean it's, it's nice and riding at night is thrilling to ride through the night it really is wonderful I didn't like eating very much when I was riding and I hated to stop to eat because of the time on the Land's End to John O'Groats I remember the, the, I rode from Land's End to Carlisle without having actually any real rest. I stopped to change into wet from wet things when it was raining, but n no real rest. And then, and then uh, there was a caravan came in at, um, at, at Shapfell, the top of Shapfell, and everybody was all the press were there expecting me to stop, and I went rode past it, and I felt all right then. But oh boy. When fatigue really hit me, and this is gospelly true, I tell you, it felt as if the, my stomach was shaking on my backbone. I felt so cold and empty. And, of course, I had been having little bits and bobs. I hadn't been having a, a warm, hot, really hot meal, a really hot meal. And I think I made a big mistake there. Eventually, she did reach the John O'Groats Hotel. And when she did, she'd found she'd smashed the record by several hours, completing the end-to-end in an extraordinary time of two days, 11 hours and seven minutes. The plan was to go on and make an attempt on the thousand mile record, which meant forcing her exhausted body to ride on for another 130 miles. And then of course I had about an hour, an hour and about 48 minutes rest. And this was at 11 o'clock at night when it's bedtime really for me. I was pushed off. And the road was very rough, very, very rough. And I, I was gradually plodding along 
along this road, and the, and it felt as if my my thighs were being torn on my legs. I've never felt anything like it. And then as soon as I got up on the smooth, the road, the proper road, oh, it was lovely, and I didn't have any problem. I was just patting them round. And uh, I was just going quite happily along. And there were all the, the snow flowers, I think they call them snow flowers, were all on the side of the road. It looked like snow. And, um, and Frank Southall called out to me, can you manage a third of a mile faster? And I said, why? And he said, you'll get the men's thousand record. And so I said, no. Because <laughs> I know jolly well I... I wasn't really up to it, not then at all. And um, so he said, well, ride on a bit, but he said, we'll stop you soon to have a rest. And I got on to, into the caravan for an hour and had a rest. And then I came out again and carried on. And I, I got to, I was really seeing things, hallucinating. And that is obviously from complete exhaustion. And um, I waved to somebody because I somebody when when the light was gradually getting lighter I thought somebody was up the road um, and it was a, a, a major road ahead sign when I got there and everybody in the car said she's waving to somebody let's all wave so they all waved out of the car <laughs> and they, when they got up there they said it was it was his sign it was right quite funny oh dear but um, I just carried on and then the last the very last one I went into the caravan Frank said, you know, you better get off the, and have a rest because I was getting, I was clipping the grass verge, I was keeping on the grass. I was sort of drawn to the grass edge and he said, no, get into the caravan and have a rest. And and I was absolutely, he said, do you fancy something to eat? And I said, yes. He said, how about bacon and eggs? So I said, yes. So I had four rashes of bacon and two eggs. And, and do you know, my my wrists were so sore, I couldn't cut up the bacon my wrists were so weak and so he cut out the bacon and he was holding my head and he was putting this bacon and I was and he said you'll do it kid I said I'll do it I can remember munching away on my bacon and eggs oh what a moment it was incredible really it tasted so heavenly so really heavenly and then we carried on and uh, in I came what a relief Eileen Sheridan's thousand mile record stood until 2002 nearly half a century later. And it's amazing how much weight I used to lose on the long-distance ride. Um, I, on a 24-hour, and I, I did 400, 446, I did. And I got weighed a week after that, and I weighed seven stone four. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I, I used to race at 7.12. But then um, when I got, I got too thin, really, I think, and the masseur suggested that I had some Guinnesses, <laughs> which was very nice, actually. I quite enjoyed a Guinness at the time. You you have to lose weight if you're, you know, it's no good carrying a lot of heavy weight about, is it? And I got very, very powerful in the legs, and uh, I could clean and jerk more than my own body weight. I was very strong, and I could do press-ups. Oh, I, I, had to, I was sent away with the road team, um, to have photographs, it was a scream. Uh, I had to ra- I rode down to uh, Somerset to where it was where it was held, and they all went down on the train. <laughs> and, and I can remember we all, all had breakfast together. It was a scream. 
it was really funny with Dave Bedwell and people like that. Dave Bedwell, um, Ken Joy, there were a whole whole crowd of them, and um, and they were the Hercules team. And uh, at breakfast, it was really funny. They I came to go out of my room, and they they tied a tubular tie to my doorknob, <laughs> and, and I think a bathroom door or something. So they had a job to get out, but I managed to get out and came down. And uh, we all went out training together, and they they had huge packs of food. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, because I used to just have a drink on the front. You know, I was quite happy to drink on the front. We had great fun. It was quite hilarious. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Eileen's achievements were at a time when women's cycle sport was in its infancy, and she was one of the real pioneers. And although she won the admiration of her cycling peers very quickly she still had to contend with the deep-rooted sexism of the times. Listen to this short film to get an idea of what I'm talking about. Of course, most housewives haven't got the time to go in for exotic hairstyles, especially when there's a baby and a schoolboy son around. But then Mrs Eileen Sheridan is no ordinary woman. In addition to her household duties, she finds the time to be a champion professional cyclist, and that means training with a capital T. Some men believe a woman's place is in the home, but Eileen's husband likes to get her out of the house, even if it's only into the garage. For in this homemade gymnasium, he supervises the exacting training that has brought her 11 championship medals and 23 national place-to-place records. Among her performances is the land's end to John O'Groat's record. 872 miles in two days, 11 hours. While a trophy for the record non-stop London York run at an average 21 miles per hour is also in this collection. In her spare time, Eileen is writing her life story. No wonder she wins races. She has to, to get back in time to catch up with the housework. I asked her how she responded to these kinds of attitudes when she was confronted with them, and she recounted a couple of incidents that show the same feisty, combative nature that she had become known for on the bike. I went to a uh, went to a dinner. I just got that first first um, uh, twenty five mile national championship, and I was asked to present the pri- and the awards at a dinner. And I sat down at this this table. Nobody knew who I was because I was rather you know new at the at the job. And uh, and an old man who was sitting next to me, uh, we were chatting away and very friendly. And then he, the this chairman said, called on Eileen Sheridan, national champion, to come up to present the awards. And before I could get to my feet, he whispered in my ear, "I can't stand these lady champions. I like my women to be feminine." <laughs> and so of course. I looked at him and put my hand on his shoulder and I said, I'm sorry, because <laughs> I had to go up and present the prizes. When I came back, he'd gone. I never saw him again. Oh, dear. And I went on a sports forum when, you know, later on, and, um, and I was invited on, and there was Freddie Mills, the great, great, great boxer, you know, the great uh, heavyweight boxer. He was great. He's a marvellous sort of chap huge fellow and then there were cricketers and, and runners and everybody on this this uh, quiz and do you know what one of the questions was did the panel think that a woman's place was at the kitchen sink and not in sport 
I thought that was a terribly awful thing to say. And so I I had to keep very calm. I'd like to have told him. And I just said, I think that I have taken my place at both equally. And that was it. When we got when we got to the back of the stage, Freddie Mills put his great big arms up in the air and he said, I think women should be at the kitchen sink. So I got my fist and I punched him in his solar plexus and I said to him, I think, I think... And then, and then he said, and he said, no, I think women should take up boxing <laughs> after he doubled up and come up again. Oh, he was a very jolly man. You've been listening to an edition of The Bike Show celebrating the life of Eileen Sheridan, one of Britain's great cyclists. Alive and well and an inspiration to us all. I'm Jack Thurston and you're listening to Resonance FM. Until the next time on The Bike Show, thanks for listening. Goodbye.
Now, I mean, they all laughed at my handlebars. Now, that's, now didn't they, Ken? All the cycling world, they la- laughed at my great big handlebars, you see. Yeah, but I, I got into a lovely flat position when I was on that bike. They can say what the... And I used to lie almost on the tip of the saddle. And all the fast men now, when you see their positions, they're down, very flat, and they're right on the tip of their saddles. It's incredible, but that's how I found I was doing the fastest times. <laughs> 